Man, it's so good to be with you on Christmas Eve. Thank you for coming to celebrate today with us. This is such a a valuable hour in this holiday weekend. So thank you for spending it with us. I I wanna take the time that I have to to share the word of God with you. I wanna challenge you to behold today. Now this is a word that I have been exhausting this month in our church, but not just in our church, I've been exhausting it at home. I decided uh, back after Thanksgiving as I was getting ready to preach a a four-week Advent series called Behold, Hold, that I would just try to bring that word back into rotation in the English language. I know we don't hear it very often. People don't say behold. That would be weird if somebody said that to you. Like, but, but I like weird. I kind of lean into awkward moments. So I decided that uh, instead of saying to my uh, family at the house, hey, check this out. Hey, look at this, because I'm always saying that. Hey, look, look at this. Check this out. I just switched it up. I said, behold, behold. So I've been saying it all month. And I got to be honest with you, the the joke didn't go over well the first time. But like all good dad jokes, it's not really about how funny it is, it's how committed you are to it. And I'm all in. Like, I'm all in. So I just keep rolling with it and, you know, Christmas is tomorrow, so it'll be all right. But that word behold, it's actually seen 1,298 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Now, we don't see it in the newer translations, uh, but it really is a word. It's not like they just decided to add that in for, you know, some, uh, some old English flair. It's a Greek word that's translated into English, and the word is edu in the Greek, and what it means is be sure to see. Like, like don't miss this. It means pay attention. It means to understand to know something. And and so every time you see behold almost 1,300 times, it's an invitation to a change of scenery or uh, we're gonna introduce a new idea, we're gonna emphasize something, we wanna call your attention to a detail. And so when I think about the Christmas season, like isn't that what the Christmas season is for us? Everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, we, we get invitations to think, to behold, to realize and understand Jesus is in the music that's playing even on secular stations. It's, it's in the decorations that we see around town. I would dare say you've probably written Christ more in the last four weeks than all the rest of the year combined. Every time you write a card or type a message or text to somebody, Merry Christmas, you, you got to pause and make sure you spelled the first six letters right and you behold Christ in that moment. And so as we're thinking about Jesus, no doubt. We're all thinking more about it. My my question is not, are you more aware, but have you really stopped to stare, to realize, to behold who he is and what he's done? One of the ways that we've been turning our attention towards Christ in this season is through the Advent wreath. It's a church tradition uh, that, that starts four weeks before Christmas, and every weekend at church, we've been lighting one of these candles to symbolize the hope and the love and the joy and the peace that Christ brings. Uh, A little bit later in the service, we'll light the Christ candle, the one in the center. But I want to invite my wife to come now and go ahead and light for, for the final time in this Advent season the four candles that represent hope and love, joy and peace. And, and I want to invite you for the next few moments to behold hope with me. The Bible says this about Jesus coming 
to Bethlehem's manger, it says, a people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, now if, if we only had one candle lighting this whole room, that would not be enough. We, we wouldn't be able to really see what we're doing in this room, and, and it would be frustrating, no doubt. But if we had been in total darkness and I lit one candle, how many of you know that would signify hope? Immediately, we would have a sense of our location, a sense of, of, of depth perception of where we are in the room. We would have something to go by. I don't know if you've ever actually experienced total darkness before. I thought I had because we've all been in the dark. But last summer, uh, my family and I, we went on vacation in Tennessee, and we got to experience 0% light. We were visiting the Lost Sea. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Lost Sea. Uh, it's around Sweetwater, Tennessee, and uh, it, it's this lake that was discovered underground years ago, and it's four acres of lake. It's, it's huge, and so they, we were down exploring these caverns, and when we got down to the deepest cavern in the Lost Sea, our guide said, now, in just a moment, I'm going to turn off the light for one minute, and you're going to experience absolute darkness. Don't move. And so he turned off the light. And sure enough, I mean, it was amazing to me how disorienting it is to have zero light. I mean, couldn't see my hand moving in front of my face, didn't know where I was in proximity to any wells. I, I couldn't even tell if I was blinking or not because there was no less light with my eyes open or closed. And then all of a sudden, he turned the light back on. I'm going to tell you, we were glad when he turned the light back on. That minute felt like a little longer than a minute. But when the light came on, all of a sudden we had some perspective. And this is the way hope works. You know, the kids this Christmas season are a lot more hopeful today than they were on the first Sunday of Advent when we lit the hope candle for the first time, right? Why? Because now they've only got one sleep until Christmas. Like the hope is building. And can I tell you, friends, that's the way it is with Jesus. The closer we get to Christ, the more our hope grows. So what I want to do for the next few moments is I want you to see a scripture in Luke's gospel of the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, and I want to look at the invitation that the angels gave to the shepherds who were out in the field. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, and behold... An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, it says, there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, now can you just imagine if you're seeing this scene play out? If you're a shepherd in the field and all of a sudden an angel shows up and, and gives you this incredible announcement, don't be afraid, behold, there's a Savior born to you. And then all of a sudden there's a multitude of angels and they're all singing glory to God in the highest. Could you imagine in that moment if one of the other shepherds then said to you, well, 
That was cool. Well, we better get some sleep, guys. We got a big day tomorrow. Like, could you imagine if you saw all that and then you just went about counting sheep, didn't actually go and investigate what you were just told about? That's not what happened at all. In fact, verse 15 says, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Can I just tell you today that the invitation is not just an invitation to hear about a Savior. The invitation was an invitation to behold a Savior. So it's great to know, but it's better to go. I remember back in 2020 when, when we were having to do everything online and my daughter had her first field hockey game and they said we could, we could watch it on TV. I'm telling you, that was, that was terrible. You know, God bless them. Somebody volunteered to stand on the sideline with an iPhone and stream it online, and we're just watching ants, you know, dance across. We had, you couldn't see anything. It was terrible. How many of you know it's better to go? It's better to be there in person. By the way, let me just say that one of the reasons we come to church together like this, I mean, yes, we want to know about God, but we don't just come here to know about God. We don't just come to get information because... By the grace of God, we still live in a country where you're allowed to have your own copy of this book. It's amazing enough. You can actually read it for yourself. You don't need me to read it to you. You can open up your Bible and you can know this stuff. But one of the reasons we come together is because we understand there is something that is powerful and palpable when the people of God come together in the presence of God. It's great to know, but it's better to go. And so the disciple, the, the shepherds here get the invitation and they go to the city. You know, there's a lot of people that, that say they know the story. But how many of us can actually say, I beheld him? That was exactly the testimony of John, who wrote the gospel of John. The apostle says in the first chapter, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is the Apostle John's testimony. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We knew him personally. Grace and the truth in the flesh, we beheld his glory. And what's interesting about that testimony from John is it's always fascinated me how John actually described himself in his gospel. When John talks about himself in the Gospel of John, he talks about himself in the third person. And he describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, imagine, imagine if you're one of the other disciples and, and you're reading this literature. And every time he talks about himself, he calls himself the one, you know which one I'm talking about, the one Jesus loved. I mean, I, I can just imagine that there has to be some arguments that went down in heaven, you know, when, when, when the apostles got together and, and read John's gospel. Let, let me give you an example of what happened. Uh, this from John chapter 20, it's Easter Sunday morning. Mary goes to the tomb. The body of Jesus isn't there. And so she goes running 
to tell the others. Here's how John records the story. He says, after Mary saw the empty tomb, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is having a personal conversation with the apostle Peter. And John is is listening. He's following them. He writes about it in John 21. Here's how John writes the story. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Like, don't you know that had to irritate Peter? He's like, come on, man. Really? But as crazy as that sounds, can I tell you, friends, if you've beheld the fullness of grace and truth, that's the feeling you have. You feel like even if I'm the only one in the room, he loves me. He's crazy about me. Can I just encourage you for a few moments to just behold this love? John said in his gospel in John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his own life for his friends. And the reason John wrote that is because Jesus said it. And Jesus didn't just say it, Jesus did it. Can I tell you tonight that the, The whole arc of human history finds its pinnacle at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything before that moment is a setup for that day. And everything after the cross is in effect of the cross. Everything is touched by this moment. It all centers there. If you want to behold love, behold the cross. Behold the cross. Way, way back in the beginning of history, we see a, a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. It's like page two of your Bible. I mean, this is like right after creation. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden with God. Everything's great and everything God made is good. But then the serpent comes and tempts them to eat of the forbidden fruit. They take of the fruit and then God shows up to hold everyone accountable. And and in that conversation God has with Adam and Eve, the Bible says he turns and he says something to the serpent. And and this is maybe one of the most important verses in the whole Bible, definitely in the Old Testament, because it communicates way back at the beginning where the story's going. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity or, or strife, contention, Between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So so God was saying way back in the beginning that I am putting into place right now a plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption is going to come through a child born of a woman. Now, on Christmas Eve, we all understand that woman was Mary and that child was Jesus, the Son of God. But he said way back then, I'm going to set up a plan to redeem fallen humanity. And then right after he says it, he does something really interesting. There in Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, on the surface level, that verse might not look that significant, but it's really important. And the reason it is is because this is the first time that we see grace being provided through a sacrifice. 
The whole sacrificial system that God's going to set up through the Israelites, it starts right here in Genesis 3. You see, for God to provide a tunic of skins for Adam and Eve, that means something had to die in the garden that day. Something had to die because they had sin. Up to that point, the Bible says they, they were naked and knew no shame. Why would they? There was no sin. There was no self-consciousness. There was no shame or embarrassment. There was innocence, like, like a two-year-old kid running buck naked through the living room, just innocent. But then when they sinned and they became aware, the Bible says God clothed them. He clothed them. And right after he does that, we get the first behold in the whole Bible. The first behold, maybe the first time in history that anybody ever said, look, pay attention to this. Check this out. Don't miss this. There's going to be a change of scene. Something new is about to happen. You need to perceive this. And, and right there in the next verse, Genesis 3, 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. Now, obviously, man already knew good because everything God had made, he said it was good. But now he understood evil. And now, God says, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. What happens in this moment is because man is now sinful by nature, God had to spare humanity and the earth itself from all of the evil that we would be capable of. So he didn't allow us to live forever. He shortened their lifespan. So the first behold in the whole Bible is a warning that our appetite for sin is never gonna be satisfied. That's what God says in that moment. You're now sinful by nature and your desire for sin and for evil will never be satisfied, so I can't let man live forever. Now, that sounds like a, a lofty theological idea, but the truth is, if, if you have kids, you get this. I, if you have a dog, you get this. Like, listen, you don't let your kid run out in the street, right? It's not that you want to limit their playtime. You don't want them to get hit by a car. If you have a dog, you build a fence around it. You put it on a leash, why? Because you understand they're going to go too far. They're going to go too far and they're going to get hurt. And so God, in an act of judgment, displays grace. It's not the only time he did it, by the way. In Genesis 6, the Bible says that, that all the people of the earth came together in the plain of Shinar and they were going to build a tower to heaven. We call it the Tower of Babel. It was the very opposite of what God told them to do. God said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to cover the earth. Instead, they're like, nope, let's all come together. We'll just, we'll just build a staircase up to heaven. We'll do this ourselves. And God in that moment recognized there is no limit to their sinful depravity. There's no limit to how far they could go. And so he divided their languages. He confused the languages of the people. It was judgment as an act of mercy on humanity. God understood something that we need to remember. 
that our sin will always take us farther than we want to go. It'll always keep us there longer than we wanted to stay. And sin will always cost you more than you're willing to pay. And the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin, the, the cost, the price, the penalty of sin is death. That's why God had to put a sacrificial system in place early on. He said that the justice of God has to be satisfied and the penalty for sin is death, but the mercy of God also has to be satisfied. And so I'm gonna put a sacrifice in place and offer salvation, atonement, a replacement. I'll cover your sin. He did it with a tunic for Adam and Eve and he did it with the Lord Jesus Christ for us. The Bible says when we are saved, we are robed in righteousness. That's why I love the rest of this verse. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but it says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And can I tell you this Christmas Eve, that right there is the best gift any person could ever get. That's the best gift you could ever get. To know that my sins can be forgiven. It's no wonder that the angel said, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy for all the people. Behold this joy for a moment. This joy is for all the people. It's not just for those that showed up at the manger. It's not just for those that beheld him. It's for all the people. You can have joy today. You can behold joy today. One of the ways you can do it is through the word of God. Like every time we open the word, we have the potential of beholding the joy of the Lord. In fact, John, the, the one whom Jesus loved, as an old man, he wrote another letter. It's tucked in the back of our Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote those letters to Christians who never had the privilege of actually beholding Jesus in his humanity. John outlived all the other disciples. And so as an old man, he realized there are people that they think that Jesus wasn't actually a real person. They believe he's God, but they don't believe he was a real person. And so John writes in 1st John and he says, I knew him. I talked with him. I know, I know his voice print. I, I, know, I know his laugh. I, I, I know how big he was and how strong he was. I beheld him. I, I knew him personally. And then he says in verse 4 of that little letter, John tells them, and these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. In other words, you don't have to have known the physical Jesus. I mean, there's plenty of people I've heard in my life that have said, well, you know, I'd believe if I got to, you know, see some miracles. Or like if Jesus showed up, you know, if, if I actually could see Jesus, if I could see God, then I would believe. John says, you, you can be full of joy even without having had that experience. You can have great joy. And John says the reason you can is because I'm an authoritative source. The other apostles, they're authoritative sources. In fact, in the next verse, he says, this message that I'm preaching, this is the message which we have heard from him and we declare to you. So I, I didn't get this on the internet. John's like, I, I knew Jesus. I, I saw him feed the 5,000. I, I heard the sermons. I was sitting there on the Mount of Olives. I, I watched him feed the multitude and raise Lazarus from the dead. I watched him die, stood there next to his mother. And three days later, he showed up again. I put my hand where the nails had been. I, I knew him. And he says, you can trust this story because this story changed my life. And now, because it changed our lives, it's changed the world. 
John said, you can trust the source. You can trust God's word. The Bible says that Jesus is the word who became flesh in John chapter one. But can I tell you the, the, the word of God is Jesus in the text. When we know the Bible, we know Jesus. But joy is not just something to, to behold. Joy is actually something to be had. Joy, joy is something that, that, that you, can, you can experience for yourself. That's, that's why Jesus told his disciples, it's actually good that I'm going away. Because if I go away, I can send the Holy Spirit, my spirit, to be with you. And when the Holy Spirit is with you, I'm with you, always. So you don't have to go uh, like the wise men traveling from afar to behold the Christ child. You don't have to have lived in, in the day and age that Jesus walked the earth. You can behold him in the word of God. But even when you don't have a Bible at hand, you can have the presence of Jesus with you any and every place. Because his spirit lives in you. That's why Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Like a lot of people think, especially around the holidays, like I gotta, I gotta be strong and put on a happy face. Like I gotta muster up some strength and some joy. But the Bible says the opposite. You don't have to be strong to show joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord will be your strength. He'll give you something you don't even have within yourself. And that's, that's what he offers us when we behold him. Finally, I, I want you to just behold this peace for a moment that's available to us. Right before the angel said to those shepherds, behold, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. Right before he said that, behold, he gave a command. I want you to see it in the text again. Verse 10 says, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Do not be afraid. I don't know if you've noticed this in reading the Christmas story over the years, but fear is a pretty big factor in the storyline. Like everybody that the angel shows up to, that's what they have to say to him. Do not be afraid. Shows up to, to Zachariah, do not be afraid. To Joseph, do not be afraid. To Mary, do not be afraid. To the shepherds, he says it again and again. And that's why this behold is so important. This behold in the text is literally the key to finding peace. He says, do not be afraid, behold. Or we could say it this way, do not be fearing, be perceiving. And here's what I want you to perceive. I'm bringing you good news. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news that could cause great joy. So here's the principle. If we behold, we won't be afraid. If we take the time to comprehend the message of the gospel, if we take the time to realize what Jesus really offers us, who he really came to be, then you won't be dominated by fear anymore. And what is the good news? He said, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news. Let's look at verse 11 one more time. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. That's good news. It's also an indictment. It says you need a Savior. It says you're a sinner. 
it says you need rescued. But it's good news because he's here. There's a savior who has been born, but he doesn't stop there. He says, who is Christ the Lord? Christ the anointed king. Lord, he's the leader. He's in charge. He only has one position he'll take, and it's at the front. And so there's only one way that we can actually approach Christ and find peace and find hope and find love and find joy, and that's if we approach him as Christ the Lord. That's the invitation. And so I wanna give us an opportunity today at the close of this service to, to, in a very practical, tangible way, to respond to Jesus for who he really is. So we're gonna receive communion today. Whether this is your home church or you're just a guest with us, this is open to anyone who wants to receive communion. There's communion cups in the cup holder in the seat in front of you. I wanna invite you to go ahead and take those. Take those communion cups and if you peel back the clear layer on the top, you can get to the little wafer that's there. Just hold on to it for a moment. And then we'll peel back the plastic tab to get to the juice. And in a moment, we're going to receive communion together. And as you find those elements and prepare to receive them, I want to ask my wife to come once again. And for the first time this Christmas season, we're going to light the Christ candle. This candle that represents our anticipation of his coming. And as we light this candle today and get ready to receive communion, I want to share with you some of the words that Paul shared with the church of Corinth in, in his first letter that we have in the Word of God, 1 Corinthians. Paul describes communion and he explains what Jesus taught the disciples, why it's so important. As often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, Jesus said, you celebrate my death until I come again. Now, to, to, to have a celebration of death on Christmas Eve might sound a little bit morbid. And some even might wonder, why in the world would we celebrate death? And can I just tell you, the reason we celebrate his death is because he didn't stay dead. <laughs> Amen? He didn't stay dead, but in his death, he accomplished what God foreshadowed all the way back in the Garden of Eden, that the seed of a woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, that on the cross, Jesus would clothe us with a garment of righteousness, that our sins would be atoned for, that God's justice would be satisfied, and so would his mercy by sending his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. And, and, and Paul explained to the church that the bread that we eat, it, it represents the body of Christ, his humanity. At Christmas time, we remember the body of Jesus, born in the flesh. He said that the, the cup, the juice, it represents the blood of Jesus the precious blood. Jesus had to be born of a virgin because everyone as far back as Adam has a sinful nature. But Jesus was born without sin and he never committed sin. And so when we drink of the cup, we remember that his blood was perfect and it was enough to satisfy the wages of sin, my sin, your sin.
So when we eat the bread and when we drink the juice, there's nothing mystical or magical about the elements. They're just emblems. But, but if we take account in our spirit, then when we eat the bread, we're recognizing I'm not just eating this bread. I'm saying, Jesus, who is the bread of life, Jesus, I receive you in my life. And maybe you've never received communion before. Maybe you've never even asked Jesus to, to be the Lord of your life. This, this can be your altar call moment. You don't have to raise a hand or come down an aisle or fill out a card. In this act of worship, you can say, Jesus, as I receive the bread that represents your body, I want Christ in my life. If you're here today and you want peace and hope and joy and love, the only way to approach Christ is as Lord. So I want to invite you to let this be that moment for you. When you drink the juice to say, Lord, this represents your blood. And I believe the blood of Jesus covers all my guilty stains. I receive forgiveness even as I receive from this cup today. In 1 Corinthians, Paul explains what communion is. In 2 Corinthians, he explains what I'm doing right now. And I want to read a portion of scripture before we partake of these elements from 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, that's my role today. I implore you on Christ's behalf. Don't let this day end without being reconciled to God. There's only one thing in the world that can separate you from God, and that's sin. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin. But be reconciled with God. He goes on to say, for he, God, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we're going to celebrate. That's the deal. We take the bread. We take the cup. He takes all of our guilty stains. And then in the next verse, Paul says, we then, as the workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Like, don't let this just be a, a, a holiday tradition. Don't just let this be some religious ceremony. Don't receive it in vain. Be amazed by grace. For he says, and he quotes the Old Testament, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. When was that time? When was that day? The writer, when he said it was looking towards the cross, he was saying there's coming a time and there's coming a day where I'm going to hear you and I'm going to offer salvation. I'm going to help you. But Paul is living way on the other side of the cross. And he makes this comment. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Can I encourage you to behold the moment that we're in right now, friends? Now's the acceptable time. Now's the day of salvation. 
So as we get ready to receive these emblems together, I'm gonna ask you to just bow your head with me for a moment of prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity to respond to Jesus, our Messiah, who came in the flesh, who grew up in the flesh, and who died in the flesh to pay the penalty for our sins. So Jesus, as we receive the bread, as we receive the cup, from our hearts, we say, Lord, we want you. Jesus, we want you in our lives. We want your spirit, your joy to give us strength. We want your peace that surpasses all understanding. We want the hope that is an anchor for our soul. And Lord, we want to experience the love of Jesus that was displayed at the cross. So Lord, we receive all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, let's eat the bread together and let's drink the cup. Once you've received communion, I want to invite you to put that cup back in the cup holder and take the candle that was handed to you on your way in. We're going to stand together and just share in a final moment of worship. And just before we begin to let the light spread around this room from the front to the back, we're going to go ahead and start to bring the house lights down. I shared with you the first behold in God's word. We've talked about the behold announcements of Christmas. I I feel like it's only fitting that I give you the last behold in the Bible. Behold number 1,298. Comes on the last page. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 says this. And behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. Those are the words of Jesus. Behold, I'm coming and I'm coming quickly. Friends, that's what Advent's all about. The first Advent that we've celebrated is about Christ coming as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. But the second Advent is when he comes again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first time he came, the prophet said, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. But the second time he comes, Revelation 1 says he'll split the eastern sky and every eye will see him on that day. So friends, as we spread this light around this room and worship the Lord in this final moment on Christmas Eve, I want to encourage you to let the light that comes to you in this moment be the light that you carry to a darkened world that still doesn't know, behold, he's coming again. On this final weekend of the year, God, we pray that the love, that the hope, that the joy and the peace of Christ that invades our hearts, that Lord, that light would be carried by your people into a world that is still in darkness, to a people that do not know and have not heard. Behold, the king is coming and he comes quickly. 
and his reward is in his hand. Father, we thank you that in Christ, all of our needs are supplied. And this Christmas, God, we rejoice in the God of our salvation. May we still be amazed by your grace. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen.